Welcome to another episode of Chan with the Plan, the podcast. I'm your host, Max Chan. One of the biggest obstacles that recent graduates face is not only trying to land their first job out of university slash college, but also having to pay off all that student debt. And to help recent grads and early professionals pay off their student debt quicker so they can start building their wealth long-term, I have brought in Amanda Henry, who not only has paid off $65,000 worth of debt, she now has zero debt and has a six-figure net worth. All through a combination of getting the financial expertise she needed, creating a financial plan, and being disciplined to stick with it long-term. Amanda is currently a sales enablement training facilitator at Google, and she is also the founder of Lady Boss Finance, a platform created to equip young professionals with the blueprint for navigating the corporate workplace and their professional finances to live abundant lives. Today, the community she has built is over 3,000 members strong. Now let's get into my discussion with Amanda so she can share her story of how she went from $65,000 in debt to building a six-figure net worth. So I want to paint a picture for my audience today. So Amanda, you graduate from one of the most prestigious business schools in the world, Wharton. You graduate with 65K in debt. What was your first reaction when you internalized how much debt you had to pay off? Oh man, we're starting with the tough questions. The first thought was like, holy cow, what did I get myself into? I know this is going to pay off because I did get a great education. But of course, when you're first graduating, you get like your first job. You're just trying to transition into being an adult and make sense of everything. And so it's just like, okay, I know I'll get through this, but this I have a long journey ahead. I think that was my like initial reaction. Yeah, adulting really hit you in the face with a 65K bill you had to pay off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and for me, uh, like Morton is in Philadelphia. I took my first job was in New Jersey and I was actually going to be all by myself. I'm originally from upstate New York. So I was moving to a new state, new city, no family. And to add, you know, insult to injury, I had that that debt was also a new car because I needed something reliable. So it was just a lot of changes at once. What was the first car? Uh, first car was a Chevy Sonic hatchback. That, there's a whole other story to that. But my dad worked for Chevy, so he got me a discount or so I thought that's one of the, that's another financial lesson there. But that was the first. Oh, car. let's share it. Uh, we're on the topic. <laughs> so what so what is the uh, so, so what was the financial lesson? Oh man. So long story short, I was doing my Googles and I wanted a Nissan like Versa note. And at the time, the model I saw was only like $15,000. But my dad was so convinced I had to get a car from Chevy because that's where he worked. He wanted to show off, be like, I'm a dad, I'm helping my daughter. And I didn't know at the time that he was going to contribute 10000 towards the car. So long story short, I had to get the Chevy Sonic, the most like highest trim. It was so expensive. And basically with, with, with the discount plus his contribution, my actual like re- remaining balance was roughly $18,000. And now when I look back, I said, well, if I would have known you were going to pay 10000 down, I would have stuck with the car that I wanted that was only like 15000 which would have left me with a $5,000 car note. So to this day, I, I get mad at him about that. I'm like, don't do that when you help out my little brothers. Like, Get them a cheaper car so they have a, a smaller car note. <laughs> He was just trying to be a dad and like help you flex for your next job. Yeah, help right? me your flex. I'm like, help me flex by keeping money in my wallet. That's that's the help. But you know, I appreciate it. I got it. You know, not everybody has that help. But if I knew that, what I know now, I would have went with a cheaper car. So I would have had a, a smaller car note. Do you still have it? 
I do still have it. It is seven years old. It actually turns year seven in two days on June 4th. His name is Angel Lorenzo, and he's still going strong. <laughs> nice. So that's the only car you have now? That's the only car I have. Yeah. It's been, it's, it's been lasting me. I think the next one might be a Tesla, maybe like three years. <laughs> so that's great. So you, the first car you've ever bought, you still have it during this yeah. time. Because mm-hmm. I, I know like, uh, I, I, we won't get too into it, but I know a lot of people like switching their cars like every few years, like via leases. But like yeah. for me, I, I don't know about you, like I'd rather finance a car because at least at the end I can own it. At uh, leasing, there's a lot of implications after the lease is done, which you end up paying more if you want to keep the car right. Exactly. And I, I mean, I haven't had a car payment in a few years. And so it still gives me maintenance troubles as every car will. But at this point, I'd rather have that money in my pocket to invest or spend on shoes or whatever I feel like doing. Favorite brand of shoes? <laughs> well, this is going to sound so corny. Probably Nikes. I grew up being like a sporty girl. So I always just like comfortable sneakers. Um, if I'm going a little bit on the luxurious side, I like um, coach shoes. Very cute and fashionable. All right, this is not a racial question, but uh, did you play basketball? <laughs> Sorry, or track and field? I don't want to like... It's okay. Because if we met in person, you'd be like, oh, she's tall. She clearly played basketball. So I am actually like five, nine and a half. I did do basketball. I also did volleyball, tennis. Crap, one more. But the biggest one I'm known for is golf. So I've played golf since the age of seven, real random. My longest drive is now 275 yards that I just got a few months back. So yeah, those are are my sports. So I needed some good sneakers for that. So let's try to get back into uh, on topic. So <laughs> yeah, no, it's good to like, you know build rapport with my guests. But when you graduated with the debt, did you have a job lined up already, or did you have to look? Oh, that's a great question. So I did have a job, which I just want to feel like like so fortunate because I know a lot of people graduate and they're just trying to scramble to get like at least a job, a job in their field, right? So I had interned at Verizon my junior year summer leading into senior year and thankfully was able to earn a return offer to come back the following year. So I went in senior year like knowing I had a job offer ready to go. So you weren't too panicked. It was just more about like, how do I pay off this debt as fast as possible? Yeah, like that was my goal was like to even go into school, I had to take student loans. And and that's a whole story about just like access to opportunity coming from Buffalo, New York. Like I'm the kid in the school that kind of made it out and like is making something of herself. But that cost a lot in, in loans. I could have stayed local and kind of got had a full ride. And so I knew going to the school, I needed a full time job. And so that was like mission critical. Did you work at all during your four years at Wharton to pay off the <laughs> debt a little bit? So another lesson. I definitely worked, but I did not work to pay off my student loans, unfortunately. So one of the the interesting things about college, I'm sure you're aware, is they have like work-study programs. So after taking out student loans and all of that, I still had like a few thousand I could only access through work-study. So from freshman year, I was always working at least two jobs at a time. The most I worked was the fall of my senior year. I actually worked four jobs three local in the Philadelphia area and one internship in New York City, actually for Disney, ABC television. If you're a big fan of like Scandal and Grey's Anatomy, it was when all that was was very popular. And that was a decision so I can get another recommendation letter to go back to grad school. Because I knew like from a career perspective, you need your master's degree at some point. And so it was a strategic plan, but definitely a, a lot of working. But I should have probably put some of those money towards student loans that I'm looking back on it to reduce my interest. <laughs> So wait, so were you uh, working to like for living expenses more so? Is that what you're saying there? Yeah, more so for living expenses. And then if I can be like really transparent, Wharton is a very hard school. As a first gen like college grad, I was not prepared for like what it would mean to actually navigate those systems and how to be successful. So I got like my first C 
And I realized like, girl, you're not going to make it through like a perfect GPA of what got you in here. Like to stand out in, in jobs and everything like that. It was going to be based on experience. So at first I was getting jobs just for living experiences. But then I said, you need to be strategic even about the jobs you get to build up your resume. So at least you could have like solid experience as an undergrad. So I'm not sure about your culture, but for Asian culture, if you get a B, you're like in trouble. Like, <laughs> did you have that sort of pressure at um, your household or, or, or not really? You know, I don't think my parents actually saw my full college transcripts, if we're going to be honest. Like, I was there. I was passing. They knew I was very active. Like, I was working. I was also, like, on a dance team. I managed a basketball team, ended a business attorney. So they're just like, as long as you're graduating, we're proud of you. Like, you're just out there, you know, doing the best you can. And and I appreciate that. And, you know, that those academic pressures kind of left once I left the household. But in high school, yeah, I was like... I wasn't even allowed to get it like a B plus. It was so crazy. I have two younger brothers. They could bring home the whole alphabet, but like Amanda had to have like straight A's. But once I got to college, it's like, you're grown now, go figure it out. So that's good. It's, it's kind of like let you spread your own wings at that point. Yeah. You got to figure it out and fall and, and rise again. So what's some advice for people that do want to do work and school at the same time to potentially pay off a little bit of the loan before they graduate? Definitely don't take on more than you can handle. So I was taking on like a a larger course load as well, just in case I need to graduate early because of all the student loans. Like I was taking out so many, I I didn't want to, you know, take on more than I needed. So definitely kind of have a plan in place. Of course, have a budget of some sort. You know what your living expenses are going to be. Be honest about how much you need in terms of your lifestyle. Like, do you like to hang out with friends? Maybe hit up a bar. So you need to budget in some money for like margaritas and chips and guac. And then how much do you want to put towards your actual debt? Is it just like, okay, if I can commit to 100 a month, which for a college student, that's probably a lot of money, honestly, until you get your first full-time paying job. But just have a plan in place and just know that any type of progress is still progress that will get you there eventually. That's some great advice. Just like, just... It's better to pluck away at it than try to do it all at once, right? Yeah. And you're still in college. Like you want to enjoy yourself. And so one thing I would like not do differently is like not work as much. Like I wish I would have enjoyed college more because it's just such a precious time in your life if you get to go. Yeah, I agree with that, right? Because a lot of people want to like do well in school and then get a job, right? But like mm-hmm. I think university is probably the only opportunity where you can actually really start discovering about yourself and like really build a social network. Because it's probably similar to you is like, I, I find it hard to like really make friends after university because like you have your own like home responsibilities. Then the only people that you really talk to on a day to day basis is more of people at work, your colleagues Like you may keep in touch with a few of your friends when you graduate, but eventually like, like family and stuff like it drifts off, right? Like, would you agree with that? completely like I feel like I, I moved out from the east coast after you know school and my first job but then I came out here for my current job in California and making adult friends is nearly impossible outside of like the convenience of work because oh you're all there you get to know each other and I'm so fortunate though because I've met some great people that I do consider friends that I work with but outside of that I, I it, it would be a complete struggle unless maybe I join like a sports team or something where you get together every Friday night and maybe I should do that that's a good idea <laughs> Thanks, Max. <laughs> uh, I'm uh, I'm being uh, your psychiatrist right now <laughs> at the same time as a podcast episode. It's great. What were your four jobs? Oh, man. So one was being kind of like the administrative person at the college dorms. You check people in and out, that type of situation. One was working with like a local kind of high school, high school students who started their own um, healthy food kind of granola bar. So kind of mentoring them in terms of actual production of said granola bars, but then also how do they actually 
brand themselves, create their website, run their blog. I was also a research assistant for one of my marketing professors. And so she had different kind of experiments and things that she was running that I'd help her in terms of data analysis and recommendations. And then lastly was the internship at Disney in the fall, which was in New York. So I would commute on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays from like 5 a.m. catching like the mega bus or the Greyhound. And then I'd get back at like seven o'clock and I'd have literally like an hour to change and eat before going to either a basketball game or dance practice or hopefully study at some point as well. I had stacked my classes on Mondays and Wednesdays to kind of pull this off. So you worked at Disney and then you end up getting a full-time role at Verizon, right? Yeah. So by the time I was actually working like within a couple of weeks of working at Disney, I'd found out about my offer at Verizon. And I was very transparent as well up front in the interview process because they kind of hinted at wanting to recruit me full time as well. And I'm like, I already have this offer here. Um, this is more just for like breadth of experience and knowledge, but it was just an incredible experience. In retrospect, looking back, if Disney and Verizon gave you a full-time offer, like <laughs> which one, did you regret your decision? Or do you say, you know what, I, I should have focused more on media. Like Ooh. what's your take on that? That's such a cool, that's a juicy question, Max. Okay, you're starting trouble. So <laughs> honestly, knowing what I know now, and I try to live with very minimal regrets, I'm glad at the decision I made to go with Verizon. I experienced so much growth being in that company, especially as a person of color, a young woman as well. Like that company is very kind of the traditional corporate landscape. And for me, I think I got the best kind of like boot camp into what it meant to be a young professional because nobody was kind of going easy on me. Like, I feel like I didn't get that, like, I don't know if you would relate to this, that trial and error period when it's like your first job and people have low expectations because you're new and you're young. Like, uh -uh, I didn't get any of that. My first project was supporting a VP directly and like everything that I did kind of mattered up into the C-suite. It's a very unique kind of experience that I wouldn't trade for anything and has helped me just develop into the person I am today. What are some lessons you can provide anybody who's listening that is a new grad or potentially going to be landing a corporate job? Like what's the big difference in terms of working in an educational environment, such as a university college compared to the corporate workforce? Well, one of the biggest differences is you're being paid for the work you're producing, right? So your, your exams you're taking, those you know essays and reports and papers, like you're paying to get that education, to get certified that you have a certain knowledge and skill set. Once you move into the corporate world, you know they're not paying you to get a job done. So my first recommendation would be to understand what success looks like in that role. Understand what that means from your manager's perspective, the person who is kind of over your performance ratings and all of that, but also to your manager's manager. And how does the work that you're doing actually align to the larger and broader business goals? And secondly, try to understand what excellence looks like. And I don't mean perfection, and I want to separate the two. Perfection can, can be a little bit unhealthy if you don't give yourself grace. But excellence meaning like, who's the gold star? Like, what does A versus B level work look like? And who's exhibiting that? And that answer is likely kind of spread across multiple people. So you want to understand each team member of yours, like what is their superpower? And kind of, I say, take the glitter from each person and then adapt it to fit yourself. Like you have to show up as Max, like in your greatness, but maybe something that like Lauren is doing or that Tom is doing, you can learn from and adapt to even take it to the next level. It's about owning your greatness, right? Owning your greatness, walking it. Like you were hired for a reason. I know imposter syndrome. I'm sure that's something you probably coach people on like in interviews and stuff. It's like, yes, it's true. Sometimes you may doubt yourself because you're surrounded by equally amazing people, but you're also one of those amazing people, person. So like walk in that and, and 
Just if you need to remind yourself, maybe have a post-it note, like I'm great because of these 10 reasons that you have to look at on those kind of harder days. You got your full-time role at Verizon. You're going in guns blazing. Did you think about paying your loan off right away with like your first paycheck? Or did you wait a little bit before you started saying, okay, now it's time to put my plan to action to paying off the debt? Yeah. So I literally remember sitting in my apartment with like no furniture and I'm looking at like my budget and I'm like, you get to select, you know, what type of repayment plan. And so I was never somebody who was in denial about my student loans. I'm like, okay, we're going to tackle this thing. We're going to get it done. What plan makes sense? My initial option, and you may be familiar with this, was kind of like the standard get it done in 10 years, but it was a graduated plan. So it's a lower monthly payment to start, but then it gets like really big a few years down the line. And my thought process was, okay, in a few years, I'll get a couple raises, promotions. I can stomach a larger payment. But honestly, Max, like after the first year of doing that, I saw how little progress I was making. And it was kind of hard for me to believe that it would actually be paid off in the 10 years. I'm like, I didn't fully understand interest at that point, but I knew that it was not working in my favor. And thankfully, within the year after that, I came in touch with a coworker who introduced me to this guy, Dave Ramsey, who I will say has some very extreme views as it relates to paying off your debt and how you should handle your finances. But I will give him the credit that he got me started into the possibilities of what it meant to really get gung-ho blazing on it. And so I think that's when things started to really ramp up. So like the first two years, 2014 and 2016, I was like paying towards it and not making as much progress. And then in 2016, I got introduced to the Dave Ramsey methodology. And that's where I really got more intense um, and paid it off sooner. How does it work? So I know like in Canada, like when I had my student loan of um, 25K to start when I graduated, like there was the... Uh, the long-term minimum plan, which takes about 11 years. So similar to what you just said, so you have 10 years to pay it off as a minimum. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. So it was like a 10-year version or you can do like the 25. And I'm like, 25? I don't want to do this for 25 years. So I was like, 10 years, but give me like, I think it, I was able to start with like a $200-ish minimum payment. And then it would have graduated to like 800 at some point. But then after like the two years, I switched it to like the full standard. So it was always 489 is kind of where it landed at for the student loan portion. And then of course, I just paid on top of that. You know, as things progress. So you like pay the minimum on top of a, a digital contribution. Yeah. And so that's when you get into like, okay, you're budgeting, what can you cut out? And like, for me, I can say the one blessing I had is I'm naturally a homebody. So I was never like, oh, I want to be out and about and like spending money. Like that was never my MO in the first place. And I had gotten back into grad school right after undergrad. So I was always just busy, just bored, typing papers, just chilling. So it was easier for me, I think, to cut back on like lifestyle stuff and just spend less so I could pay more towards my debt. So you were big on uh, making it rain at the clubs. Yeah, that was not me. I was not trying to make it rain on the clubs. I'll make it rain on myself when it comes to food. I think that was like, I love food. So that's probably one of my bigger expenses now. But back then I was like, oh, let me pack my peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and my yogurt parfaits for breakfast every single day. It was rough out there for a few years. <laughs> yeah, I, I had a reputation at work as a sandwich guy because all I brought for lunch were sandwiches. And there's like, yeah. like, do you like make anything else? Because it's cheap. No. It's a, like... Yeah, so yeah. like uh, I'd rather I do that than go to the cafe every night, right? Yeah, that's yeah, true too. yeah, that's the cheap too. <laughs> so in, in terms of the, the type of plans that they offered you, like the twenty-five year plan, like did you actually see how much interest you would be paying if you went that long? Like for me, in terms of my length, if I did the minimum payment, it would take me the eleven years or twelve years or what, whatever it was. But I realized that if I did do the minimum payment, I would actually pay double what I owed right? Because the interest build up so much at that point. Like, did you ever calculate like how much interest I'm actually paying if I wait too long, if I stretch it out? 
Yeah, I definitely looked at it and it was definitely, like you said, something ridiculous. I don't know if it would have been double, but definitely at least another like 15,000, like something crazy where I'm like, this is not worth it. Like I'm giving you extra money. Like there's got to be a better way. And I don't know like what you like to do in your spare time. I had taken like my first international trip in like 2015. I went to Jamaica with my like then boyfriend at the time, who's now my husband. And we paid like each $500 basically for that trip. And it was like an all-inclusive resort. So sweet. The point here was I'm like $500 trip to Jamaica for like, you know, four days, three nights, $500 basically like student loan payment. So basically I'm depriving myself of a trip to Jamaica every month. What? That makes no sense. So that was like really all the motivation I needed to really like hamper down, to be honest. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to sidestep a little bit. So you're married yeah. now, right? You just mentioned that. I am married so, now. Yeah. So in terms of the engagement and wedding ring, did you have your financial mind of like <laughs> when you're thinking about like what ring to get? Or you say, no, I, I want the biggest rock. So wh where was your mindset in terms of that? And what's, yeah. and what's your advice to like women out there that are planning to like get engaged and get married and all that? It's interesting. And so I, I will say the, the moment that I got more intense about finances, like really, really crazy was um, within like what four or five months after we had gotten married, because we got married in 2016. So when it came to the engagement, the ring thing, I am big on like, I can make anything happen. Just give me like the budget. And so I, I basically like asked them, like, what are you comfortable spending on the ring? We have a whole different type of love story for a different time, different podcast. But basically I got to pick out my own ring. Like we, we basically discussed it. He's like, yeah, we should get married. You know, we had known each other since I was in college. So we've had some, some time in the game to get to know each other. And he gave me the budget and I went to the ring store. And this was like a month out before Mother's Day. So like April this time frame. And I found the ring that I wanted. And because of all like the Mother's Day sales, and there was like another sale going on, I basically was able to get like a ring that was worth twice as much um, as what he actually ended up paying for it because I'm great with my deals and everything. And the ring is gorgeous. I love it. Like I don't really want to replace it or upgrade. It's just so it's, it's perfect. But I'm just a big believer that when there is a will, there's a budget to make it to make there be a way. I don't know if that makes sense. But I guess my advice for ladies is like be honest about, about what you want, but also be realistic and know that like where you start isn't where you end as you and your, your relationship continue to grow and develop. And assuming y'all stay married because, you know, divorce rates are crazy. You can always upgrade it once you all are just like making it rain, you know, <laughs> 10 years later with higher incomes and maybe businesses and investments. Like I can get a, a better ring now if I wanted one, but that just to me would be a waste of money. But that's just where my where my heart lies is not in like material things. So to each his or her own, no judgment. Again, it really depends on like the lifestyle you're trying to like yeah. want to accomplish, right? So in terms of like, you, you found a good um, deal because it was close to Mother's Day, right? So as someone that's has a strong financial acumen, do you negotiate a lot in terms of the, the deals you try to get, whether it's like buying stuff or even negotiating your salary? Uh, so where, where's the spectrum in terms of your negotiation ability? Yeah, so I'll say it's better now than it was back then. <laughs> I mean, like, honestly... And, and you probably can relate to some of this as well. Like for me and my family, it was just like, oh, you got like this great paying job. And like my starting salary was on par with like what my parents were making, if not more. And so for them, it's just like, oh my gosh, it's great. Of course you're going to take this job. Like it didn't even crossed my mind to really even negotiate or push back because 
to even get to this point just seemed kind of like impossible, right? It wasn't until I made my move from Verizon to now Google where I actually was intentional about negotiating and I met with like some of my mentors to kind of walk me through the different things I could negotiate, such as like a signing bonus, any type of stock equity, relocation, et cetera. Now, obviously each company has their own policies in terms of what they're even willing to, to negotiate with, but I was able to get um, like a signing bonus and a relocation bonus for myself and even to help move my, my husband out as well, which was great. So it's something that I would definitely recommend, even if you're a new grad and you, of course you don't want to edit that. I will say if a company chooses to give you an offer, they're investing in you and they want you for the job. And at this point, it's just you, you know, communicating your worth and, and the value you're going to bring to the table. And there is room in that initial offer for them to actually flex a little bit. You just have to be willing to do your research, like look at Glassdoor, other sites such as that, to understand your range and know what you're bringing to the table and just be able to articulate it. And don't, don't be afraid to stand up for yourself. I think we get intimidated sometimes because we feel like they have all the power, but clearly they want you because they're offering you the role and there's a need they need you to fill. So again, as we talked about earlier, like walking your superpower, help them understand why you're the person to do the job and that you're worth that amount. Obviously be realistic. Again, do your research on what the market rate is, but then based off of that, craft your package to, to pitch yourself. Did you pay off all your debt before you got into Google or after? I finished off after. So Interesting story. You're getting into all of my business, Max, but it's cool. We're friends now. When I moved out to Google, I actually moved out alone, and which was really kind of sad. Obviously, it's hard to say no to Google. In my current role, we had went through a couple different reorgs, and so I wasn't as challenged as I, I like to be. I'm a very ambitious person. If I get bored, it's just not a good look. And I had had kind of like a three-year relationship with a Google recruiter at that point of terms of just like staying in touch and building that rapport. And so the, the, the job came. My husband was still finishing up school, and he had to physically be in school. There was no remote life like we have in COVID. Um, so I made the move out here solo, which actually really helped from a financial perspective because at that point I was like fully on board with, with the debt-free journey. He wasn't there yet. And so I got to kind of live like a single person in terms of like get lots of roommates to cut down on costs and like not worry about looking cute since I was out there by myself. I'm not impressing anybody. So that kind of helped me pay off the loan sooner and was able to send upwards to like 2000 a month towards debt at one point because of that so wow okay i'm obviously a career coach so I, I will dive into the story more about like how you got into google i know you told me you got rejected three times right was it three times rejected twice man twice i got in on the third really? oh sorry rejected yes. twice but you tried three times okay got it. okay all right yeah. well three times a charm right okay so um three times charm. i'm gonna hold that nugget for a bit later i want to go back into okay. when you start at verizon so can you tell us the breakdown in terms of like your expenses, like your, your salary and your expenses and how you allocate everything effectively in order to start paying off that debt properly while still having like a, I, I would assume like a balanced life where you still like enjoy yourself. <laughs> yeah, it was a very chill budget to be honest. So my starting salary, I can say was at roughly like 54,000 a year. It was like a percentage that you got in terms of like your annual bonus and all of that. Even though I didn't know at the time they had opted me into kind of like the 401k program. So that was always kind of coming across. So at that time, I didn't even know that was what investing was. So I was always, I guess, investing a little bit. They took a little something to the side. But honestly, majority of my budget just went to like living expenses. I think I was, if I if I think about the legit numbers, like I had put like 50 bucks aside per paycheck in terms of like a mini savings. But there wasn't a lot of wiggle room, to be honest. Like it was just rent, utilities, gas, and maybe like 20, 30 bucks for like a social life of some sort, which really just meant going to get like takeout, to be honest. Like I was legit homebody and like in grad school. So if I wasn't hanging out with Bay, like literally I wasn't doing much or like going to church and like I was on a dance team at church. Those would be like the big things. 
Very boring. So, you know, you can say that. It's okay. <laughs> okay. So it's 54K starting salary. Obviously, most of it went to living expenses. And then how much was the, the payment for the student loan per month? Like the, the yeah. first year when you didn't pay much off in terms of the principal? So the first year was like roughly 200 and some change because I was on that graduated plan. By the second year, I had moved it to be that 489 number. So it was just going to be standard 49 a month for 10 years. And then it was supposed to pay it off. But we know with interest, that's not what would have happened if I stayed that route. Okay, so you did the 490. And then once you started making more, you did it extra on top of the 490, right? On top. Yeah. So like one day I, I went through my list of like all of my loans and I want to say it was like, wait, I had the exact number. So it was 15 in total. I'm including my car. So 14 student loans and then my car loan. And like I saw one day that I had one of those like 14 that was literally only $426, like the principal on it. And I'm like, so my minimum monthly payment is literally more than the principal on this one individual loan. But because of the way that they, you know, direct the funds, it was literally only getting like a couple dollars of like the share of that minimum payment. So I basically ordered my loans from like smallest principal to largest just to kind of get motivated, honestly, to just see those quick wins go off and then like paid that one off quickly and then just kind of worked my way up. And so like that was the smallest loan. The largest one was as large as like 7,000. And then there was different ones, different lengths in between. So I went smallest to largest and just kind of like attacked it. So how much was the car loan monthly and how long was the term? Yeah, so my car loan, eighteen thousand was the balance, and it equated to two eighty nine in terms of the minimum payment at like a five percent interest rate. That term was for five years. I ended up paying that off early. So the way that I really did is I had two like small private loans. I tackled those ones off first, and then I went for the car loan next, just because it was smaller relative to the rest of those student loans. And then once I freed that up, that was incredible because I went from being able to only put like four hundred, you know, towards the actual big student loan to now I had like a debt snowball, as we call it, of a little over 800 bucks a month between the car loan and the other private ones. And so almost kind of double your minimum payment just starts to kind of kick things in. And then now you start to see raises. And then when I moved out to Google, I actually entered it into a sales org. And so something called a sales bonus, I'm like, holy crap, what is this? How can I get a lot of it so I can pay this thing off quicker? And like, that's when things kind of accelerated. Got it. Okay. So when you started off at Verizon, you paid the minimum, you realized that, hey, I'm not really chopping a lot of the principal. I'm just paying interest. You increased the minimum payment, but then you added more on top of the minimum. And then when you went to Google, you started making a lot more money. And then you really just started like throwing everything at it to like pay off the debt. Yeah. And it's it's a tough pill to swallow because I know for me, I'm somebody who only utilized like my nine to five income to tackle this journey. I was not like a side hustle person until like after the fact, but it is true when they say like, you can only decrease your expenses, but so much. And like, I'm not even somebody who had like a legit social life. And so I can only imagine how hard it is if like, you're a more, you know, out there person. Like it really was increasing my income, being strategic about like the job that I took and like, once I got there, okay, how do I get promoted on a more accelerated rate so I can get to the higher tier salary band, which unlocks more, you know, bonus and stock and things of that nature. So the, yeah, that was like a big key for me was just increasing my income to be able to tackle it faster. Yeah, I had a, a guest a couple weeks ago, Kirsten, right? She also talked about like, you can only reduce your expenses so much because again, you have to live somewhere, right? But the income that you can make, it's really restricted based on your potential and your belief, right? Yeah, that's, that's essentially it. And I mean, of course, obviously, if you have some, I guess, leaky kind of kind of faucet action going on, like if you're spending a, a lot of money on like new clothes that you probably can't even wear, they sell the tags on. Okay, that's a different conversation. You do want to cut some of that back. But for me, I got to the point where like, there's nothing else I can cut back that's going to make a dent. I needed more money coming in to really make to make that that effort go through. 
And then that's when you started getting promoted, like focused on getting promoted at Google. And then that's when they also did the uh, Lady Boss Finance, right? Yeah. So that's like, I started like, once I got there, I was like, okay, let me actually start to track my journey. And like Lady Boss Finance was great to kind of see my own progress, but just get connected with other like-minded individuals. Like when you're on this journey, you're probably either the first in your immediate family or circle to do it. Or you maybe just, you just don't know how to, how, what path to take because there's so much information out there. And so I'm forever grateful to like the debt-free community on Instagram that really helped me just understand more about my options. You know, my parents can go down this, this pathway. They're very different in terms of their financial behaviors. And even like talking about investing, it's just like a foreign language. It's like, oh no, I don't want to risk losing, losing the money that I do have. Like, no, we're not doing that. And I'm like, but you don't understand. I, it's me and it's my younger brothers. You could leave a larger legacy for us. Like... We could be doing more. And so it's it's been an incredible journey. Yeah. Well, as the saying goes, if you're not doing anything with your money, you're going to lose it anyway due to inflation, right? There you go. Like, it's going to be worth less. I, I saw like a crazy chart, like, what, like $1,000 in 1960 would be worth like nothing today or whatever. So you have to invest to keep up with, with the market and to keep up with the value. But so many people aren't comfortable doing it just because of what they've been taught, like culturally and things of that nature. Yeah, like I've been taught, go to school, get a good education, get a good job, and then save more than you spend. But they missed in the equation of like, you have to invest because I can't just leave it in a bank or a savings account where it makes like nothing, right? Because eventually it's going to eat up. Yeah. And then we have retirement, like the savings has been so chewed up due to inflation, there isn't really much to retire on. So like a lot of people miss the investing part of the equation. And that's why I always emphasize to people that you need to invest, whether it's something safe, like an ETF over time, that's way better than right. just leaving it in, and sitting at a bank account, right? Exactly. So when you were paying off the debt, were you also looking at investing or did you just say, I want to pay off the debt first before I start investing my money? Yeah, that's that darn Dave Ramsey guy. So part of his manifesto is you save like a thousand dollar emergency fund and then you pay off your debts, order them from smallest to largest. And then after you pay off your debts, then you build up your like three to six month emergency fund. Looking back on that, I did follow those three steps. But looking back on it, I realized that wasn't the best move because he wants you to basically like cut off all investing, including your 401k, which is crazy if you work at an employer that gives you a decent match. And so Verizon had already opted me in. I didn't kind of touch. I just like let it do what it what it does. When I got to Google, I said, okay, I'm going to actually, I'm going to keep going with the plan. So I didn't invest in my 401k at all during like my first year there as I was finishing up. And it was such a big miss, honestly, just because Google has an amazing 401k matching program. I won't go into the details, but like, it's incredible. So at a minimum, I should have invested to get the match. But at the same time, you know, looking back on it, I'm not going to hold any regrets because I'm able now to actually do so. And California is expensive. So to be really honest, if I was investing and trying to pay off debt, like it would have taken me probably an additional one to two years to get to the same place. But I am thankful that at least at Verizon, they were like taking out a little something, something which gave me a little mess like there. Out of curiosity for people who don't know. So if you invest money into a company 401k like Verizon and then you move to another company, how does the transfer work? Like how does that work usually? Yeah, it's a great question. So kind of from a high level, you have a couple options. You can one, leave it there, which is what I did. So it's with Fidelity and it just continues to just grow in a queue and assuming as long as the company itself doesn't have any weird stipulations about it, which most won't, you can just leave it there. And then when you get to retirement age, you can still cash it out as you so fit. But you also have the option to either roll it over into your existing employer's 401k, or you can move it into an IRA, which is an individual retirement account. So you have it completely separate from your 401k. So you have options. Either way. And when, when you paid off that debt, when, when it hit the zero, so did you celebrate after or like, what, what did you do? 
I just kind of breathed. <laughs> I was like, oh, it's it's gone. Is it like really gone? You probably like sign off and sign back in. Like, is it still? Because it takes, you know, a few days to process and everything. You're like, is it, is it really gone? Do I owe any dollars more? Definitely celebrated. I know I probably got some food, probably either like tacos or some sort of, some sort of like Caribbean food because it's just so, I love Caribbean food. Side note, but something to like just celebrate. It was also monumental because at that same time, within a couple of months, my husband was actually moving out to California. So like the timing wise was like, this burden is gone and we're going to like get our place and like start our life out here. So it was a very, very like transformational moment and, and kind of transitional too, in terms of like life in general. But it just felt like a huge weight was off my shoulders. And like the next focus was like, okay, we need to build up this emergency fund because we live in California. Like anything can happen. <laughs> Earthquakes are real. And it was okay for me to live off of just like a thousand dollar emergency fund because it was just me. And I'm like, okay, we have a family. Like we need to get ourselves established. And so that was like the next focus afterwards was to build up the emergency fund. So how much would an emergency fund be for like three to six months? Like how did you allocate what was the right number for that emergency fund? Yeah. So like bare bare bones budget was I'll say three thousand a month in terms of like rent utilities and like just food and, and gas back and forth. So if you do that math by twelve, we're looking at like what, thirty-six thousand? Right. Yeah. So that was kind of roughly the number I was going off of. Basically just rounded up to 40K. So like that was my immediate kind of goal. And thankfully I was still in the sales org at that time and had got promoted as well. And so was just able to kind of just focus on like my bonuses. Like I was like a study and forget it. If I don't, I never count bonus or like even a tax refund money as money for me to spend. So in my mind, I'm like, okay, let me just direct any of those funds to help me get to the goal quicker. And so that was kind of how I tackled that. I should like your mindset in terms of the bonus, because a lot of people think bonus is part of their salary, but a bonus is a bonus that you're not supposed to get. So you want to treat it as extra money and utilize it as an extra money, like whether it's like pay down something down faster, right? That like you shouldn't count it towards your salary. Yeah. I mean, in, in like tech professionals in general, I know a lot of different companies have different like stock kind of incentives as well. Some folks will cash out their stock. Others will hold. I can say for me, I've actually kept all the stock at this point and you know, it's doing great. Not investing advice. It's doing great. But I know for others, like depending on also where you come in, if you're a little bit more junior, you kind of need to maybe tap into that to make it all work out for you. But for me, it was really important to like budget the actual money coming in on, the, the, on a biweekly basis. And anything above and beyond that was just going to help me accelerate any financial goals. But of course, I carved out like a little bit to just celebrate, you know, take a trip or something as well. So you paid off the debt. You haven't been in debt since, right? You've just been building up that six-figure network we'll get to in a bit. Yeah. I refuse to owe anybody anything. Like it irks my soul. I will say no. Right now I am in debt to the IRS. <laughs> I owe the tax bill that I literally just paid. I'm like, okay, now I got to pay myself back, which sucks. But that's like the only time. And I'm like, okay, I need a bigger sinking fund for like tax bills now because California taxes are ridiculous. Yeah. Like when you're uh, doing your side hustle and Google, you, you have to do two tax bills, right? You have, you have to do like two returns. No, no, no. So I have only started monetizing Lady Boss Finance like this year. So it's always been more of a passion project for me of just get the information out there, like give back, like similar to you, like you're, you're a career coach, like you've, you've formed a business around it, which is like so inspirational for me. It's, it's a natural thing where I just like love kind of mentoring and guiding folks. And so I'm only just now moving Lady Boss Finance into more of like an actual business, but like from a tax perspective, as as you move up the chain, you know, your income grows and things of that nature. It was like the first time we got like a tax bill. It was like, oh, y'all really owe the IRS money. Like you need to withhold more dollars. I'm like, okay, this is a good problem to have, but we didn't see it coming. So I'm like, okay, we have to pay that. And so it can get paid off, which is fine. And we know just to plan ahead of time for next year to either like have them withdraw more or just set aside some funds, you know, for the next tax bill. 
All right. So I, I want to rewind a little bit. As I said, I, I'm a career coach and you work at Google, which is one of the top tech companies in the world. A lot of my audience is on LinkedIn. So they probably want to know your journey into getting to Google because you took three <laughs> tries, but you got rejected twice, right? So walk me through the process in yeah. terms of like how that came about. So how did you try the first time? Like, did you apply online or did you just network with like a recruiter? How, how did that come about? Yeah. And you know, I should probably give myself more credit because technically I was only rejected once, but I like to say it took me two tries, you know, because that's just what it is. So back in fall of 2014, I had just started at Verizon and I got reached out to by a recruiter on LinkedIn for like an account manager position, which is kind of always hiring in terms of like your digital marketing strategist that helps small businesses run their Google ads and YouTube ads accounts. And so we kind of went back and forth and the role was posted for like Ann Arbor, Michigan. I had never been to Michigan. I was just starting my job. And so I'm like, as much as I love to work at Google because it is Google, like an incredible company, it wasn't the right timing for me to make that move because I just started and it just would have been logistically a headache to like back out of that offer to move to another. So I just said, hey, thank you so much. But, you know, right opportunity, but wrong time. We stayed in touch and roughly like a year later, I was actively like looking at their APMM program, which is like their entry-level marketing role. And it's really awesome because you get to rotate into a couple positions for like two years and then you graduate into like an official product marketing manager role. Went through that recruiting process, unfortunately did not make it to through the final round, which was just like crushed my heart. But I kind of understood the rationale behind that, to be honest. <laughs> so it was okay. It is more entry-level at that point. I had a couple years of experience and I always like to joke, I also had had a bad grade in calculus. And at that point, they're still utilizing your undergrad transcript. And as I shared with you earlier today, I was over-indexing on experience versus grades just because that was my pathway to make it. So it's all good. I had I was competing against some incredible young people who were recent grads. And so I respectfully took that, that L or that loss. <laughs> but I stayed in touch with a recruiter. And so several months kind of passed by since that last interview round and they reached back out and said, hey, that account management position, it's now opening and there's headcount in the California office. Are you open? And at that point, the stars were aligning. Um, we, again, as I mentioned before, I'd gone through some reorgs at my current role. And so I was ready for a new challenge. And so I flew, got flown out, had an accelerated interview because they still had my interview on record from the previous one. And my interview scores were great. It was just, you know, that final package there in terms of the transcript. But because I was also more years out of college at that point, three years out, they were able to utilize my grad school transcript, which was thankfully Wonderful A's, A's and A's. So that replaced the undergrad piece and got in and moved out in July 2017 and haven't looked back. That, that's a good lesson because a lot of people, they don't keep in touch with hiring managers or recruiters after they yeah. end up not getting a job, right? But mm -hmm. the fact that you actually stay in touch, like how would you stay in touch after you get rejected? Like, is there, do you just like ping them a couple months down the road or how does that usually work to make it more of like authentic instead of you just following up all the time saying, hey, is there an opening? Yeah, I think you hit the nail right on the head. Like you should not be like, oh my gosh, hey, is there an opening? Or hey, I saw this opening. Like, like no, you don't want to stalk them. They have a lot going on. It was honestly very authentic. So of course, if they post anything on LinkedIn and, and you do this very well yourself, Max, like it's just responding with a comment, showing an insightful tidbit, you know, or even just putting an emoji reaction, right? Just something that lets them know, hey, I'm still alive. I'm still here. Just keeping the doors open. I did practically reach out when it came to the, the, the marketing program. Like, hey, I saw this. I don't know if this is in your wheelhouse based off of our previous discussions. Do you feel like this is a good fit? Because the conversation has never been, you're not a good fit for Google. It was the role was not the best fit for you or the right timing. 
And that's one of the things that I love about our culture is, you know, we're a very competitive place to, to get into. And I do not speak on behalf of the company. This is my personal opinion. It is challenging to get into the company. But one thing that we, we pride ourselves in is we like to set people up for success. And so what I love is even if you're a great candidate, if the role is not going to be the best fit for you, you know, we'll say no. <laughs> and I always appreciated that because looking back and knowing what I know now being on the inside, that actual marketing role would not have been the best fit for me. That program would not have been the best fit for me. What I actually ended up taking in that sales org has just skyrocketed my growth and my trajectory in the company. And I'm so thankful that I got those no's ahead of time to get the correct yes. And I think that's some great advice for anyone, whether you're an early career professional or even mid-career, is there's nothing wrong with saying no to the right opportunity if it's the wrong time. Because if it's meant to be, it will come back around. Yeah, when that exactly what happened to you, right? Yeah, literally. Like, it took three years, and I had an incredible experience at Verizon. Like, got to work on impactful projects. There's a whole other story about behind that. But, like, I'm so thankful for those no's because if I would have left prematurely, I would have missed out on some incredible growth opportunities from a professional perspective and building out that network there that now lead into how I carry myself in this new corporate setting. And everything is additive. And so... You know, a no today is just giving you time to say yes to the right thing tomorrow. I also like that you touched upon how, like, since you had an interview on file with them, that was just an accelerate interview. So what does that mean? Like, you just go straight to the hiring manager and then do a proper interview with that team? That, that's all you had to do compared to, like, all the screens, like, prior? Is that how that worked? Almost. I wish. Instead of having, like, four interviews, because usually you kind of interview based off of our four main core values, I only had two. That was kind of it. I actually, by the time I got back into my hotel room, I found out that I was going to the hiring committee. So I was, like, going out to dinner with some friends that were in the city, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I made it through to the next round. I'm just waiting for the final package. And then within, like, two weeks, I had found out that I was, that I'd gotten it, and then I would have, I moved out, like, within, like, a month. So it was very quick. Yeah, so you ended up getting the job at Google. You paid off your debt. How did you start going to the path of building that six-figure net worth? So what was the plan? What was the next plan now? So you're out of debt now. What's your plan in terms of growing to that six-figure net worth that you have now? Yeah, so one of the things I'm really thankful for in terms of just like understanding your, your benefits package and just for any professional out there, make sure you understand what all is available to you. Like companies do when investing your well-being and in your success, and there's likely some sort of benefit that you're not taking advantage of. So for me, that benefit was working with a Vanguard representative directly. They are a 401k brokerage, and we actually just have this benefit to actually speak with somebody live. And so I said, hey, can you please help me understand everything there is to know about my 401k, but then just also like broader investing? Because I was still new. I was just doing my own Googles, and I, I saw some things online in terms of like the, the finance community on Instagram. But I want the real facts. Like, what does this really look like? What are the step-by-steps, et cetera? And so I met with this guy and he was incredible. We literally meet annually now, just in case anything new is coming out that I'm missing. And he helped me like craft a plan based off of my situation, what would make sense for me. At that time, I already had built up my emergency fund. So I was just really focused on just investing. And so he's like, okay, well, here's what your return would look like if you actually go for your, your 401k. How do you get the most you know, employer match benefits. So here's how much you'd want to invest to capitalize off of that. After you do that, then here's the next lever you would pull. Here, you know, you have your HSA available to you. You can also do a Roth IRA and this is how you would actually do the back door. And he literally walked me through step by step, like opening the traditional IRA account and then you move the money over and then in the Roth and how to invest. And even talking through more high level, right? Just like what are the different types of options in terms of index funds versus, you know, your bonds, individual stocks, et cetera. Um, and so because of that, I walked with like a plan on how to literally maximize everything that I could with Vanguard. 
even as much as like even your mega backdoor Roth, which is like a whole different level for high income earners. But if you have the money to go for it, how you can leverage that to, again, be able to benefit. And so we crafted a plan and then it was on me to attack it. And I just kind of went for it. I'm big on like pay yourself first. Like if I don't see the money, I don't miss it. And I'm also not big on lifestyle creep. Now I did over time kind of factor in and have a better kind of like social lifestyle life, right? Like my, my, I have like a travel fund, 500 a month that is precious to me based off of that Jamaica story that I shared earlier. It was so important that I like cuffed out that same monthly minimum payment and made it for travel. Even if I don't go anywhere, I either just like save it for a bigger trip or I just invest it. But I'm like, it needs to be a line item in my budget because for sentimental values. But naturally I have, you know, 401k contributions that come out pre-tax automatically, HSA, et cetera. And then I have my actual expenses. And at the end of the month, whatever's left over that I didn't actually utilize, then goes into a brokerage account as well. So I pay myself first, I pay all my bills and stuff, and then I pay myself again at the end. Yeah. So speaking of trips, like the, the $500 fund, obviously you didn't use it last year because of COVID. So are you going to take a bigger trip next year? Shh. <laughs> of course I didn't use it last year because of COVID. Max, where was I going? <laughs> I may have used it a little bit, but... <laughs> Honestly, I, and I think I think all of us maybe have uh, explored a little bit more of like our own backyard. So like going to movies, of course, maybe checking out a new local restaurant to support, or even as simple as like a museum or uh, like a, a park tour or hike or something. That's been big. Also golf. So as we talked earlier, like I did play golf from like age seven to twelve, like hardcore. I quit to piss off my dad, which is always a fun story over dinner time. But I got back into it because my husband started playing, and so he's like, well. You need to teach me. It's like, okay, so I'm teaching him how to play golf. He now plays like four days a week, Max. Like he's a legit mini Tiger Woods now. And so he's gotten me back out. So that'll also be an expense. Like we went up to Napa and like did like a nice golf course there um, last week. And then Vegas, Vegas is nearby. So we will escape to Vegas often. Off topic, I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, it's all good. We're trying to know more of you on the personal side as well, right? Like you, you invest hard, but yeah. you also play hard, right? Yeah, you, you have to enjoy life. And I, and I think at some point too, you get to, and it depends on what your goals are. Like, are you focused on financial independence and hitting that lump sum where you know you could just kind of walk away and not have to report into anybody? Or do you actually want to reach that but then retire early, which is like the FIRE movement? And I don't know if I'll ever retire early because I like to be busy and like do cool things. But once I realized that I hit a point where even if I don't invest any more money, with time and interest, it'll, it'll get there for me. That's when I realized like, okay, you need to slow down and like actually enjoy more. Um, and, and that's kind of where I'm at now in my financial journey, more balance. So speaking of the balance, what's your, I'm assuming your investing strategy is diversified into like different types yeah. of investments. So can you break it down towards like how much you like percentage wise or how much you invest in each sort of investment, if that makes sense? Yeah. Yeah. And I'll keep it simple for folks that aren't like numbers friendly. <laughs> so roughly like 12% is in cash and it's in like a high yield savings account because as you've mentioned, traditional banks only give you like pennies on the dollar. And at least in a high yield savings account, you can get a couple more dollars. I think at this point I've earned like a hundred dollars in interest or whatever over um, the course of a year. So like, it's giving me a little bit of money there. And that's really like the long-term emergency fund in case anything catastrophic were to happen. That's where we would go first. The other 88% is mainly invested across 401k account, HSA, a Roth IRA, and then taxable brokerage account. And even within there, majority is are in 
index funds. So think about like VU, which tracks the S&P 500, your top 500 companies, or VTI, which tracks like the total stock market. But I also love other more diverse index funds, such as like VNQ. I'm a big Vanguard fan, so that's why I'm using Vanguard funds. But they have, if you're in Fidelity or even Charles Schwab, there's the same type of funds within those brokerages, but like they have a real estate index fund. So even within like a more like buy and hold and like set and forget it strategy, you can still diversify in those realms. But in addition to index funds, I do dabble in individual stocks. I'll be honest. Tech stocks, of course, like, you know, I I love Apple, Google, Tesla. Again, not investing in vice. This is just what works for me. I have a dream that my Tesla stocks will buy me my Tesla one day. So hopefully Elon Musk makes some things happen. But I also like to invest in brands that I just love or believe in. So I'm like a big Coca-Cola fanatic. I will drink like one to two sodas a day if I could have it my way. Very unhealthy. But I realized if I'm going to drink that much Coca-Cola, I should probably own some shares of the company. Same thing with like a Verizon and AT&T and then MGM. I love Vegas, got married in Vegas. And so I'm like, I'm going to hold some MGM stock because we were always going to Vegas and staying in their, their properties. And then a very small percentage of that is also in speculative investments. So think of like crypto and even like marijuana stocks because legalization is happening. And as that happens eventually, I think that industry is going to boom. But mainly index funds to be safe, but I leave some space for me to play around. And I think you have to find your own risk kind of comfort level in terms of are you willing to you know, stomach any losses because at the individual or speculative like stock levels, anything could happen. So that's more like for play investing money, but majority in index funds where it's safe and good to go. So what you're saying is like, Spend a majority of your investing money into like index funds and buy and hold till you retire, right? And then the small percentage is more yeah. like for fun, like day trading, just to like keep the juices flowing. Keep the juices flowing. You know, definitely not like, what is it? What is GameStop and AMC right now? Although AMC is doing really well. Like it was a joke. And I know the Reddit Wall Street bets pros are like doing some crazy things. It's fun to watch from the sidelines. It is not fun to lose your money. And so I try to stay away from that stuff. Never invest anything you can't afford to lose because nothing is guaranteed. Like past performance does not guarantee future performance. But with an index fund, like something that tracks the total stock market, you know, a better situation because if the total stock market goes like to crap, then the world has ended and we have bigger issues and a zombie apocalypse on our hands. So, yeah. Did you panic sell when COVID really drove down the stocks for a few months, I think? I didn't. But I will say and and recognize the place of privilege that maybe I'm in. So again, I already had that large cash reserves where even if knock on wood, you know, I had lost my job and I am the breadwinner, like we have a year saved up, good to go. We would have been fine. But then on, on top of that, from an industry perspective too, like I knew that my job was was more safe. And I recognize that it's also a privilege that not a lot of people, not a lot of Americans or just individuals in this world had. So I had the privilege of more peace of mind than I know the average person did not have. So I, I understand why some folks panic sell. I think the other piece, though, is the education around investing in the first place. As we've discussed, like, I'm a buy and hold investor. I'm buying it and I plan to hold it. I'm not trying to get a quick gain. You know, anything that I need, I'm going to cash flow through my monthly budget. So that's my purpose for investing. So I just left it there and the gains have been great. I think my portfolio was actually up, like, on average between 20 and, like, 40% for the year amongst the different segments based off what's in there. Obviously, that's not the norm. It's easy to have really high gains when you have a really crappy year. But if I would have pulled out, then I would have missed out on all of those gains. So that's what buying and holding is all about. You buy and hold through the ups and the downs and everything in between. Yeah, when the pandemic hit and I had my ETFs, like it was all in the red for, I think, a couple of months. And now, like a year later or more than a year, it's, it's all green now, right? So obviously, the, 
like it, it's like even Dave Ramsey or like Warren Buffett or whoever they say like you, you ignore the short term noise because over time the stock market will improve and grow over time. Yeah, like I would, I, what did I read yesterday? Like some one ETF just hit like new all time highs. It's like you you can't time the market. You will never know. Like you will screw yourself trying to figure it out. So just ride the wave. Unless, of course, you're investing to be a day trader, which I don't personally recommend. It doesn't work for my lifestyle, but there are people who are doing that for a full-time job, but that's the life that they signed up for. But for those of us that are just trying to have the money grow so we can retire when we feel like it, if you want to aggressively retire, aggressively, excuse me, retire early, then you just invest more and then be maybe more strategic on which even index funds, because again, they, they have specialties. Like You can invest in a growth-focused index fund to kind of accelerate. As the saying goes, it's not... Timing the market is how much time you are in the market, right? Yeah. And just being consistent. Like I I have two younger brothers. The youngest one, we're six years apart. He just graduated college last year and we opened up his Roth IRA to get him started. And I'm like, you know, even if you don't touch this thing, even if you don't add anything else to it, it will actually grow and multiply itself for you. And will still be a nice chunk of change by the time you're 65 because you're only like 22. And, but of course, if he just adds a little bit, even if it's only $50 a month or a hundred dollars, like time in the market will will do the work for you. And who doesn't want to get free money without having to put in the work? I know that's what I want. Yeah, like the best way to make money in like North America is being a passive business owner through stocks, right? Yeah. And what's your um, thought process like? You're at Google. There's obviously other people at bigger companies that they do have like employee stock options where you can buy stocks at a cheaper price. Like what's your take on that? Should people maximize on that or like what's your thoughts? Yeah. It's an interesting question. I think it depends on your situation and, and what makes sense for you. I personally have not done the whole like buy stocks at a discounted price thing. Part of my compensation plan includes like RSUs, restricted stock units that I get, and they get distributed to me on a certain basis. I know different tech companies have a similar type of model as well, but I think if it makes sense for your situation and for your financial plan, what you want to achieve, go for it. Like at the end of the day, personal finance is personal. It is not my place or anyone else's to tell you what's going to make the most sense for you and your family, because we all have different things we're trying to achieve and on different timelines. And all of that is fine. Like as long as you're not hurting another human being, I'm cool with what you do. That's your business, right? That's between you and your maker. So whether that's like stock options, whether you want to keep your debt forever, I don't personally agree with that, but there are people who actually say, you know what, I'm going to postpone paying off my debt so I can build up multiple streams of income and then pay off the debt so it's less of a stressor. I actually was talking to somebody today about that. And I was like, you know what? It makes sense because you're going to be paying off your debt in a very short period of time because you have more income to work with. And maybe for your own well-being and mental health, that that makes sense as well. And so you have to figure out the journey that works best for you. And like you said, like block out the noise. Don't focus on comparing. Like Nobody knows what you want in your situation better than you. And in terms of the financial plan that you set up with that Vanguard representative, right? So how long did it take you to go from zero to your six-figure net worth that you have today from this investing strategy? Yeah. So it's funny because I didn't actually know that I had hit six figures until the following year. So I use an app that I will highly recommend, Personal Capital. You literally get like a 360 view of your personal finances. You can attach your, you know, link your checking and savings account, your different investment accounts. You can even add in like any vehicles or you know, homes you own in terms of like those hard assets and things of that nature. And so I didn't actually know I had crossed that boat until like the end of 2019. But based off of what I saw, because I only, you know, the data only starts collecting at that point, And that was like roughly September. I downloaded the app. I believe I probably hit it back like in March, um, just because I had gotten like a really big sales bonus. And I put like all of it towards my 401k. 
So that's kind of when I first knew. So just a recap. So when did you start this investing journey? In 2018. 2018. And then, so like a year, year and a half, and then you were It, it didn't figures. take as much time. Yeah, it didn't take as much time. And one is because I didn't have any more debt. So was still kind of building things up as I went. Again, built up that basically 12 month emergency fund, which is roughly like 40K. So that gets you kind of halfway there, technically speaking. <laughs> and then once I kind of switched gears and just started putting everything into investing, then you start to have actual like time in the market work in your favor and you get those gains and you're also contributing. And again, I was figuring out from a career perspective, like how do I maximize my earning potential in sales? You have a quota. And so I'm like, okay, if I hit this quota, what's my bonus? If I can get it to this level, what's that bonus look like? And so I really just like grinded at work, honestly, to make sure I could maximize my bonus. And so um, I was able to kind of 2X what my actual bonus should have been because I was hitting over 200% of my quota. And like that really, really accelerated it, to be honest. Like 2019 was the first year that I really, I hit like a new, I don't know, compensation I'd never hit before. And that helped me accelerate. It goes to show like when you have a good plan in place, the time horizon might not be as far off as you think, as long as you're consistently contributing what you did, right? Yeah. And there's even that quote, like the first 100K is the hardest. That is so true because because once you hit it, then time just does it for you. Like even if you, if you can get like that moderate 10%, which is a great return, right? On average, if you have 100K invested, okay, now you're gaining 10K. And then if any of that is in like stocks or funds that are paying off dividends, that's additional funds. And it's just going to keep building on itself. And so once I hit that threshold, things start to accelerate as well. Also, you get like stocks and things of that nature. And so if you sell it, then you can use the cash. Like some people sell it and buy cars. I'm like, you can do that. I'm going to keep it and let the market do its thing. And so controlling what I can control and then like letting the rest of the system work for me it just accelerates everything. Speaking of cars, my mindset was different in the like 20s to like now, right? So in my early 20s, like Mercedes-Benz, yeah. oh, I need this car. And then in my 30s, wow, that's a huge <laughs> depreciating asset, right? Because like, it's just a money yeah. So your, your mindset changes as you get older. Yeah, but honestly, like real talk, Max, I'm such a grandma at heart and I have to just admit that. So I was never, it's also the way that my parents raised me. Like we, we didn't, we were never the cool looking kids. Like we were always dressed nice and you know, we had what we needed. And I, I think you have to share similar family values with your family, like work hard, get an education. That was what my parents focused on, like just get an education. So we were not rocking the latest and greatest, you know, swag of the time. And I think that actually helped me as I became an adult and had my own like access to funds. I'm like, oh, I have the money and I could buy, you know, Louis Vuitton if I felt like it, but it's just a shirt or it's just a purse. Now I do like to splurge and, and treat myself, but because that's not where I hold my personal value in, it's also made, I think, easier to build that wealth journey because I'm like, I'm letting go of money that didn't hold much meaning to me in the first place. It's like my needs are met. If I have food on the table, a roof over my head, you know, I have heat, like I feel grateful. Of course, I use travel to kind of splurge and enjoy, but I've never been motivated by like being flashy. And so it's easy for me to say, well, I get paid whatever. I'm maxing out my 401k no matter what. And I know that that's $19,500 automatically off the top that goes away, but it needs to go away to work for me. Some folks will be like, oh no, you, you give that to them every year? I do. I do. And they give me back some stuff as well. So it's a great relationship. <laughs> yeah. Like I'm similar to you in terms of like more on the minimalistic approach. Like I don't really need the flashy stuff. Yeah. Just having a podcast recording that gives me joy and fulfillment. Cause like I wouldn't be able to meet you or yeah. all the other guests I've met without the podcast. Right. Cause like if I were to reach out to you without a podcast, like what's there really talk about? Right. But like uh, sharing the insights <laughs> that you share in terms of a financial perspective. 
yeah like me just reaching out to you say hey like i want to have a like a, a coffee chat like for what right like there, there's kind of no purpose so like having this podcast and like yeah getting that knowledge in terms of like your financial growth from like being in 65k debt to six-figure net worth i mean that's a good lesson and there's a lot of insights that you've shared in terms of how you've gotten there and then by you sharing your expertise you can give back to people who are listening right now on how they could do the same, right? And you did it within like a year, year and a half because you had a plan in place to do it properly and stay consistent with that plan. Yeah, and you know what's interesting? It really comes down to, I don't wanna say what you're willing to do because I feel like that that phrase can be taken out of context. But when I, and I know you're gonna resonate this because you're also a career coach, like when I talk to mentees and they're like, Amanda, help me figure out my next step. Like what role should I go after? You know, I can easily help you see all your options. You have A, B, and C pathways you can take. The onus is on you to decide, like, which one makes the most sense for where you're trying to go, and are you willing to put in the work and and do what's going to be required depending on the pathway that you take. And I feel like there's this, and I would love to get your your perspective as well as a career coach, like, there's a self-awareness piece that I think is missing in, in, like, the corporate space, especially for younger professionals, of just being honest about, you know, what are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? I think you should, everybody should do their own personal kind of SWOT analysis in terms of like what they bring into the market, into their, their role. And then also in terms of weaknesses and like threats, are there people or things in terms of resources that you need to help you fill your gaps? Because sometimes the corporate space can be harder than it needs to be just because you haven't set your own self up for success. If we put so much on our managers and other people, like they should be helping me. And it's like, yes, they have a place in that, but there's also a point where you need to recognize what can you control to be efficient. And for me, I didn't have a sales background. I didn't even know what cold calling customers was or anything like that. But what I did know is I'm great at building relationships. I'm great as being a storyteller because of my marketing background. And how do I use those strengths to help me meet a, a sales quota to then see success in my career? But I mean, Max, do you feel, does that resonate with you as a career coach in terms of like the self-awareness piece? Yeah, because a lot of people who graduate, they want that job at that big corporate company. And then I can see a lot of them end up leaving for like a smaller company because they were taught that you got to get that big corporate company right away. They might not play to your strengths, right? Like big companies have strengths. They also have weaknesses. Same with small companies. It's really about doing some self-discovery to find out what type of environment you want to be in to be more self-fulfilled, right? Because a lot of people like that. They just want that big corporate job right away, but that might not necessarily be the path that they want. It's just that they've been taught to take that path when it's not really, it might, it might not really be for them, right? That is so true. I mean, my, my first internship was at BT via Viacom, like Black Entertainment Television Networks, like really huge, right? To work there. And then after that, we had, you know, Verizon and Disney. But before I got to BT, I was literally working at like the local newspaper shop on campus and then like some like student agency where they advertise like whatever was happening on campus, like little odd jobs. And of course, like the office job and all of those experiences teach you something like everything. There's, there's no such thing as failure. It's more like just a lesson. And maybe you didn't have a lesson with the gold star. Maybe it was like a, a bad star, but like it was a lesson that you're supposed to learn and take away from. And I agree 100% with what you said. Like not every environment is going to suit you in putting in a position to succeed and thrive. Like some places are for you to survive. And once you figure out like, oh, this is just a survival place, not a thriving place, then it's on you to figure out, well, what does a thriving environment look like for me? What do I need? And then how do you get there? And then being okay that it may not be like this upward trajectory, like it might be a little, little bit more rocky and you might have to make some lateral moves and things of that nature. And that's okay. Like as long as you keep your eye on the prize and you're making progress towards that, that's what really matters. And as long as 
is you can wake up and be like happy with yourself and knowing that like you're staying true to what you need and what you care about. That's what it's really all about. Exactly. And go back to what you said, like managers and your colleagues or whoever can give you that support, but ultimately you are your strongest advocate, whether it's your career or in your personal life, right? hundred percent. So you developed a lot of your financial knowledge over the years. So why don't we take a few minutes here to talk about like your lady boss finance, like how did you start and how did you decide that this is the time to monetize it? Yeah. So Lady Boss Finance started back in like 2017. Once I was getting, you know, serious about the debt-free journey and I saw on Instagram that like there were people who were talking about it and I found somebody like on my personal page and I'm like, oh, this is cool. And then I just started going through like hashtag debt-free community. Um, I'm like, oh my gosh, there's other people like me on the internet that are just like gung-ho trying to pay things off. And so after a while, I just kind of started it up. And originally it was just to track my journey of me paying off my student loans. And then over time, once it became debt-free and then it was like, okay, build up your emergency fund, like still sharing. But one of the things that I've realized, especially for those who are first gen, is you're missing kind of like the blueprint on how to, what we say, secure the corporate bag and then manage the finances that come with it. Because you're either on one side of the coin, you either, you know, have gotten like a cool job, you get, you end up at one of these big companies, you get a decent salary that nobody in your family has seen before probably, but you have no clue how to utilize it to actually help you build wealth and break the cycle. Or maybe you, you know how to manage your finances, but you're struggling just in navigating the corporate space. And that's kind of where I'm now trying to evolve Lady Boss Finance and why I feel like the time is right. For me, if I think about my mission, it is all about like... I'll just say confidently transitioning people into high performing, like financially free young professionals by helping them understand how to activate their own personal finance and workplace navigation like blueprints. So like how do you become confident in navigating this corporate system to get where you want to get professionally? And then at the same time, how are you maximizing those financial resources that you're getting as a result of your career progression? to then build that financial legacy and honestly live free. I don't know if anybody whose dream is to work, you know, their nine to five forever, but some people get energy from that. But it's just the idea of giving you choice. While you are in this space working for somebody else, here's how you make the most of it from a career progression and a financial perspective to give the option to walk away when it makes sense for you. And so with the way the internet is moving, I've seen so many creators who, who even started after me and just kind of hit the ground running and launching all these different digital products. And for me, Max, like I'm big on my personal brand because I do put my business out there. Like people know where I work and you can find me on LinkedIn. I don't have to ask anything. <laughs> so for me, I've been actually going through like a content creator kind of fellowship via OnTech, which is like a great program, basically for any like top tech talent. That fellowship's for anything from like financial tech to like building your own startup to even like professional speaking and becoming an author. You're just like meeting with other like-minded individuals for eight weeks. And for me, I did one that was based off of course development. And so that's something that's in the works. I'll be launching hopefully the end of summer. I'm hoping around the August timeframe. And again, it's just trying to help young people who are making that transition into adulthood, whether they're like a recent college grad or they're actually a few years out, you know, but still just trying to figure out how to hit the ground running because there's just so many unwritten, unofficial rules to navigating corporate. And if you're a person of color, if you're a woman, you know, there's additional rules on top of that. And I just want to give back all the lessons that I've learned over my time just to make it easier for the next gen coming. And you're starting off of the right foot by coming on this podcast, right? Apparently, yes. That's where we're starting out. <laughs> 
Yeah, because uh, you told me before like you did a couple podcasts last year or the year before, but now you're really trying to focus on like yeah. promoting your brand, promoting Lady Boss Finance. That's why you like reached out to me and said, hey, like, I, I really want to get the message out there. Can I be a guest on your show, right? So I said, sure, right. why not? Then we had a preliminary discussion and now we're here. Well, now we're here. And also it's like just getting surrounded by like-minded folks. Like like I said, you inspire me because you kind of dived into this and you know you didn't know where it was going to go, but now you're meeting with great people and making this impact. And I see so many other people and again, I'm such, it's unfortunate. I'm such a perfectionist where I'm like, I don't want to, I don't want to be that person who's like selling digital products or things of that nature, because financially speaking, it's not about the money for me, but at the same time, if I'm going to put in all that time and effort, it's not like a very stress-free volunteer work, but thank you, Max, like for this opportunity just to come share my story. And I, again, I love the work that you're doing. Like it's so needed and y'all please tap into Max. Like he can help you out in terms of career coaching, getting your resume, your LinkedIn together, or just even interview prep. And it's so needed. So I thank you for like using your voice to shine, to give folks like me a, a platform to call, also just share and connect as well. Yeah, because uh, I actually had a recruiter a couple days ago wanting to be on my podcast. And she's asked me what the criteria is. That is there a certain expertise that you're looking for? Is there a follower count you need? And I told her, like, I don't care about your followers. If you have like good expertise that you think is valuable to share, I I'm definitely interested in you coming on, right? Because I don't care about followers either. I'm starting out too. I don't have a lot of downloads. So if you're coming on to share your expertise, then I'm willing to like give you the floor to like talk about the expertise that you can provide to like help whoever's listening like be a better person, right? Yeah. And if I could summarize what you just said, and this might be a little too like informal, but it's, it's like real recognizes real because, you know, follower count doesn't mean anything at the end of the day, if they're not engaged. One of the things that I get joy from, you know, I, I post either financial content or career content. And while my account initially started from like a financial perspective, it's actually the career content that gets more engagement in terms of like people saving it to refer back. It's almost like a one-to-one. -one. If somebody likes it, they've actually saved that post. And so that matters to me more because that's education that I know they're going to be able to implement to help move them forward in their own career goals. And again, you're, you're very, very genuine, you're very consistent. Like I see how you show up every day on LinkedIn. I'm just like, this dude is all up and down my timeline. <laughs> But I, I love it. And I want more real voices of folks who are genuine in this space speaking. It's so easy to like kind of craft and market yourself and, and come off a certain way. I really appreciate those who are in it for the right reasons and really making a difference. So what's the five year plan for Lady Voss Finance? Like where do you see it going? Five year plan. Wow, I think you're you know, this is a good push because I probably need to think even longer than that. And I mean honestly, Max, the reason why it's taken me this long to even start to monetize or think like that is because I've had such success in my nine to five. Like I have the privilege of working. I don't know if you seen like that Venn diagram with the three circles. Like if you can get paid to do what you love and what you're good at and all, like I'm actually in the nucleus now. I've moved on from my sales role into more of a virtual trainer. And I literally train folks coming into the organization who are brand new to help give them their first step into the org and how to do their job. And so I literally get paid to do my dream job, if that makes sense. And so for me, Lady Boss Finance now is turned into a space of how do I scale my wisdom of how to even get to a place like this, where if you do decide you want to do more of the corporate route versus entrepreneurship, because that is incredible and I'm all for it, but not everybody is built for it or not everybody will be dedicated enough to make it work for them. And so for those of us that are going to stay more on the corporate side, how do we just make it easier? Like corporate is a game. You have to figure out your company's game that you need to play in that playbook, but it really doesn't have to be as hard as a lot of professionals currently coming up, but even those from before us have made it seem. I feel like a lot of folks have just added additional stress 
and that just wasn't necessary to, you know, go through their nine to five. And so for me, if I can get Lady Boss Finance to a place, I think from a vision statement, it's just like, if I can touch a thousand people where they have even like attended a workshop, gone through the course where they really can look back and say, you have changed my family's trajectory for, for the best. Like we're now on track to at least be able to pass down something back to my kids. You don't have to be millionaire. Like, I don't know where millionaire status even became the thing, but like you made a goal financially to be able to just help your, your grandchildren go through college, or you were able to get that promotion at work that allowed you to then get a higher compensation to be able to take two more trips a year that just helps you from like a well-being. Like literally at the end of the day, to be able to have them be a high performing, but like financially free professional where they can live an abundant life. Like they feel like they can enjoy the things that matter to them freely. That's when I know that my work is done. So in five years, we meet again, you know, and come back and like, hey, so what's been happening in 20, what will that be like 2026? I'll tell you like X amount of people are like just changing their family tree. I'll know that I've, I've done it. And what that looks like logistically, if it's courses, if it's like public speaking, if it's like a community of folks, retreats where we hang out and turn up and just talk about our investment portfolios and like, how we, I don't know. But I know if lives are changed and people feel more free to walk in their purpose, that's where I'll get my energy. Like lady boss finance aside, when I think about my life's work, I know I've always gotten energy from just empowering people and helping them see something in themselves. And maybe they just didn't believe that they could do and just speak life into people. And while my platform now is to do it from a career and a money perspective, I can see that even shifting to a more broader life perspective. But yeah, Max, that's it. Like people feeling free to, to give the world back the gifts that they were put in this world to give us. It's funny that you said the number 1,000 because like th there's these like marketers that say like you really only need 1,000 true fans to really build a proper business. So once you get those 1,000 true fans, like right. it, you're pretty much set at that point. I just feel like this work is bigger than, than money and career. I don't know what that is yet, but I am following kind of the guidance that, that I feel like I'm being led to go down this path. And I think the timing is now right. Yeah, like I always tell people on LinkedIn that you have to enjoy the journey. Many people try to monetize too fast and they end up like hating it. The, the fastest way to hate a hobby is to try to monetize it too soon, right? Right. Like it's okay to also not monetize everything. I think there's that that piece as well because I get energy from like creating pretty fancy posts on Canva or even like dancing on TikTok and putting educational, you know, tidbits on top. It's fun. But at the same time, you know, if it does have the potential to help allow me to have like an exit strategy, if I ever do want to leave corporate, which I don't know, I want to be like a, a CMO one day or VP. So I'll probably be here for a while. But if I do want to leave at some point, I want to have something that can sustain me and my family. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to uh, end this podcast with a question that I've been asking my recent guests. So this podcast is about helping people overcome uh, roadblocks and challenges to be a better person. What was one challenge or roadblock that you faced and what did you do to overcome it to get to where you need to go today? Ooh, we are ending with the deep questions. Okay. <laughs> oh man. I'm going to go with what first came to mind because it's not one isolated incident. If I can be honest, it is mindset. And if I can be really transparent, I used to be the biggest like, anti-mindset person because I just felt like I was something we threw around. It's like a cop-out. Like, oh, you gotta get your mindset right. Get your mindset. Like, I was just like, people are just saying it, but they, they don't really mean it. And I had to come to a very um, tough place where I realized my own mindset was holding me back. And I can say that comes across in, in various incidents, but 
you need to have this belief internally of knowing what you bring to the table and then feeling empowered and, and empowered, not that somebody else gives you that power, but internally motivate and feel and have that belief and confidence in yourself to actually live that out. Like, you know, we talked about the whole walking in your superpower thing, but that is harder said than done for a lot of folks. Even when you have graduated from a certain school, even if you have 10 years of experience in the game, all it takes is one person to come in and do something different. And you're just like, oh my gosh, I don't belong anymore. And so for me, it was getting over the mindset of comparison, like thinking I had to do things like other people, the mindset that what I bring to the table is enough and the mindset that it's okay to just simply be me. And once I internalized that like Amanda walking in her authenticity is the best thing I could bring to any organization, to any relationship, friendship, experience, et cetera, that's the moment when I just reached a new level of me. And that's the season that I'm currently walking in that I'll say has started from, from 2020. I think that's when it really hit being with dealing with COVID. I was actually in Italy at the time on like a solo work assignment. And so I had a lot of time for self-reflection and I just brought myself into that new world in a place where I didn't know the language. I didn't know the culture. I'm still a, a Google assignment, but like just an international experience. And I realized like, I just have to be me here because there's no, I'm going to fit in trying to be like anybody else. I don't look like I'm Italian, anything like that. So, and that experience kind of launched this whole, Amanda's just going to do her and take it or leave it. But if you take it, I promise you, you're going to 10x your reward. You got stuck in Italy because of COVID? Like, how, how were you able to come back? Like, was there a lot of like <laughs> restrictions and stuff? <laughs> yeah, you stuck it in there. Like, I got to ask now. Like, how, the, how, how did you come back? Like, what, did you have to stay quarantined at Italy for a while? Yeah. I, I heard Italy was pretty bad, right? They, they locked down like everything. It was. I'll be quick because I know we're wrapping things up. So I got there January 2nd, 2020. I was supposed to be there through the end of March on this short-term kind of rotation. And basically the first week of March is when things got really bad. So that's when we started hearing like, oh, this COVID thing is really real. Italy, I think was either like second or third in terms of like the worst countries to be hit with it. Like I remember going to the main tourist spots and it was like completely empty, like a ghost town. I'm just like, oh, this is real. So I ended up leaving and I remember touching down March 8th and I take my phone off airplane mode and my team is like messaging me like we just got on lockdown. Like I literally left the day before they locked down. And my flight actually got canceled like three times. I had a direct flight from Milan, Italy to New York to come back. That got canceled. And I was supposed to go from Milan to London. And then they moved me to like a different airport within Milan because there was like three. So it was, it was a shit show to say the least to get back. And I thought I was going to get stranded at least for maybe like a couple of weeks. They would have found a way to get me back, but it was a very scary moment. Of course, being there, not knowing what was going on. Again, thankfully I'm a homebody, even in a foreign country. So I only went to work and then I would like walk around, but I, I stayed to myself. So thankfully I didn't come in contact with anybody that had COVID, thank God. And I had, you know, caught in contact for the last, you know, year and now going on two years. So it was an interesting ride, but yeah, it was crazy being in the epicenter when all that was going on. We were like, oh my gosh, it's getting worse. And we're looking at the numbers like going up. It's crazy. Oh, this is going to be a weird transition. So uh, again, really appreciate you spending some time with us to talk about finance <laughs> and your career. I know it's a weird transition. We have our COVID to like thanking you for being on. Uh, so how can people uh, find you online or connect with you to learn more about what you're doing? 
Yeah. Well, one, thank you again so much, Max, for the opportunity. Like this was an incredible conversation. I love just getting to talk with other amazing folks just transforming this space. So you can find me as at Lady Boss Finance across all social media channels, Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. If you're interested in one-on-one coaching or potentially enrolling in the course, just send me a DM. I'm like, hey, heard you on Max's, you know, podcast. Heard you're launching a course. Would love to just get more information. I'll be opening up the wait list um, in the coming weeks. So that's it. And also on LinkedIn, Amanda Henry, let's connect. I love to, of course, help professionals as they're going through their journey. So I'm all ears. Thank you, Amanda, for, again, sharing your advice in terms of like financial and career. And best of luck with Lady Boss Finance. Thank you. This is amazing. Thank you again to Amanda for being transparent with her finances in order to provide a detailed picture on how she was able to pay off $65,000 worth of debt. It goes to show that it doesn't matter how big of a debt you have, and $65,000 is a lot of debt. When you create a financial plan, stay disciplined and stick with it long term, you'll surprise yourself on how fast you pay off that debt. And once you pay off that debt, the next step is to create a plan to help you generate enormous wealth for the long term. And that's what Amanda exactly did. She was able to create a financial plan that suited her lifestyle, that suited her needs. And now she has built a six-figure net worth and has also built a community of over 3,000 members as part of her Lady Boss Finance brand to help other individuals build the financial wealth to secure their financial future. Again, this is Chan with The Plan, the podcast. I'm your host, Max Chan. If you found this episode helpful, I would really appreciate it if you share it with your friends and family to help support the show. I post new episodes every Tuesday on all popular podcast platforms. You can also connect with me on LinkedIn, where I post daily content on topics such as job search, career advice, and personal branding. That's it for me, and I'll see you next time.